Well, what makes a good church? I mean, what is the evidence that a church is a good church? There are probably countless Pew research studies and other such studies that show what people are looking for in a good church nowadays. Perhaps good worship songs, you know, a mix of traditional and contemporary, maybe certain types of instruments, a good children's Sunday school program, youth groups, perhaps individual chairs instead of pews. People are looking for all kinds of things in a good church nowadays. But you know what most people overlook? Quality worship. And I don't mean by that how good the music is. What I do mean is, are people genuinely worshiping the Lord when they come together on Sunday mornings? I mean, if you were to peel back all the externals, the music, the program, the morning worship service, the stage lighting, the sound systems, if we were to have a solid week, for example, of singing a cappella, a number of weeks in a row, would people still be genuinely worshiping the Lord? I'll take it a step further. What if God stripped you of everything that you hold dear now, family, the comforts of your home, your job, your friendships, love interests, your health? What if you had none of these? Would you still praise the Lord in the same way? Again, last week we looked at Psalm 1. I asked the question, do you want a New Year's blessing? And further, what will you do differently this year that you didn't do last year? The text answered that question for us, that we ought to pursue God and his word in greater ways if we desire to have his blessing. The title for this sermon is A New Year's Blessing Part 2. This week we're going to look at the other side of that blessing. Again, last week we asked the question, why should I pursue God? This week we'll ask the question, why should I praise God? Or in the words of our psalm, why should we bless the Lord? If you haven't turned to one... 103, Psalm 103, go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be this morning. This is the Psalm of David, and he answers that question definitively for us. We are to bless the Lord with all that we have for his steadfast love. The fact of his steadfast love is the reason to always give praise to the Lord our God. I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 103 before you this morning, and then we'll pray and begin. Psalm 103 says, it is a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who crowns your life, who, I'm sorry, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. 
For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his, do- his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Our Father, we thank you again for this day and our gathering together. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which you have left for our sanctification. As we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, a bit more background on the Psalms. They are largely divided into five sections or five books. This was intentional to mimic the divisions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. All Old Testament scripture has the Pentateuch as its root. It is the law of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. All that follows Genesis to Deuteronomy is an extrapolation of the history of the people of God as they received the law of Moses. They strove to obey it. They failed miserably at times, but God kept his promise to them. The theology of the Psalms is rooted in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch speaks forth of the glories of the covenant that God instituted with his people and, again, his faithfulness to uphold that covenant regardless of their failures. There are a number of different ways that the Psalms are categorized, authored by various individuals, most famous of whom is David. There are different classifications for Psalms. There are Psalms of lament, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of praise, royal Psalms, liturgical Psalms, messianic Psalms, Psalms of imprecation. We'll talk a bit about that a little bit later on as we go. Wisdom Psalms, and we could go on from there. There are many different ways to classify them. Psalm 103 would be classified as a psalm of praise. The reason why is evident. As I did last week, I'd like to call your attention to a couple of terms before we get into the text. We can see clearly that the big idea of the psalm has to do with praise toward God. He, He opens the text with that, bless the Lord, O my soul. This idea is repeated in the opening and the closing of the psalm. I mentioned the word blessed to you last week. We talked about the translation of happy being appropriate for Psalm 1. It's a different word altogether. Happy describes the one who is thus blessed of God. When you receive a blessing of God, it makes you happy. It makes makes your life uh, characterized by happiness. The word to describe our response to the person who gives the blessing is another term. That's our term for this morning. To bless in Psalm 103 has as its root the meaning to kneel. That is the concrete image. We derive the idea of praise from that because when you kneel before someone, you are giving them honor. You are essentially praising them. This word is both used of God and of men, so we're careful to translate it accordingly. The root idea to kneel or to give honor works either way. Clearly, God does not praise anyone in the same way that we praise him, right? He alone is worthy of that. But he does honor us in one sense when he blesses us. And again, in the context, when we bless the Lord, we rightly translate it as praise because we honor him as the one who is worthy of praise. That's the point of this psalm. Another word repeated multiple times in the text is here translated steadfast love. We've mentioned that already this morning. 
The root idea has something to do with goodness or kindness, particularly in a context where mercy is required. Someone is in need. Someone lacks the ability to help themselves. They are pitiful, poor, and weak. And this word is used to describe the one who does good to them. This word is sometimes translated covenant faithfulness or loving kindness with respect to God. It is used frequently in reference to the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant, again, with his often sinful and wayward people. They show themselves to be poor and wretched and weak and needy, but God is steadfast in his love towards them. What if I sin is the question. Well, God is steadfast in his love no matter what. What if I make a foolish decision or mistake? God is steadfast in his love no matter what. What if no one likes me? God is steadfast in his love no matter what. What if no one chooses to be with me? God is steadfast in his love no matter what. What if I lose my job? God is steadfast in his love no matter what. That's the message that we get when we look at the God of the Old Testament and the New. He is steadfast in his love no matter what. And that alone makes him worthy of praise. An outline for this message is pretty straightforward. Verses 1 through 5, we see praise for his steadfast love to me as an individual. We see praise for his steadfast love for the congregation in verses 6 through 14. And we see praise for his steadfast love that's available to all in verses 15 through 22. Praise for his steadfast love for me his steadfast love to the congregation, and then his steadfast love available to all at the end. Let's look at that first section. Praise for his steadfast love for me. It's verses 1 through 5 again. Look at the text with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And we could probably spend the rest of the morning on just the first line. There's so much there. We see here David instructing himself. We're not going to do that, by the way. We are going to get through this song. Um, But we see here David instructing himself. Now, it's not usually socially acceptable to talk out loud to yourself. All of us tend to do that in our heads. You know, we kind of keep it quiet, keep it on a DL. But, um, you know, here we see David in this psalm talking to himself, and it's actually okay. Um, David is functioning as a worship leader here. He's leading his people into worship to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord. And he really uses himself here. He puts forth himself as an illustration as we start getting into the text. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his name. There's so many different things we could observe from this. This is the king speaking. The king, typically the king desires all attention to be on him. Typically the king is encouraging and exhorting his people to put all eyes on him, to honor him, to kneel before him. Most kings in antiquity and even some rulers today will see themselves or set themselves up to be worshipped as God, but this king is different. This king, King David, instructs his own soul to worship another, to worship the Lord. Sometimes we forget this, and I like to point it out every once in a while, but the name of the Lord is not just a clever way of saying God. The Lord is his name. This is his covenant name that he gave to the people. When you see the name Lord, particularly marked in most Bibles with the uppercase, this is the covenant name that God gave to Israel 
for his people to distinguish him from any gods of any of the other peoples. So the age-old question as to whether or not the God of the Christian is the same as any other God, like the God of Islam, for example, the answer is definitively no. The Lord is not the same. This God, the Lord, is God alone. He will go by no other name and he will be known in no other way. David says here that his name is holy. It is to be treated as holy. It is to be treated as sacred. It is special. He is set apart from anyone else. There's no one like him. Names were important in antiquity, perhaps much more significant than today. One's name was indicative of their family, and that was indicative of their character. If your family name ever became associated with scandal, that was it. Your life in the community was over. And that's so for generations. The name of the Lord can never and should never be associated with any other false religion, period. Here David says, even to his own soul, bless the Lord, bow the knee to the Lord, honor the Lord, praise the Lord. All eyes should be on him, all attention on him, all glory to him in him alone. You ever encourage yourself like that? You ever exhort yourself to remember that all praise and honor goes to the Lord, not to you? Most of us, I think, struggle because we try to figure out how we can get more attention. How people will honor us, recognize us, our skills, our talents, our abilities. What else we need to do for people to like us. We feel that we should be the center of the universe, and when we're not, we become broken, depressed, discouraged, frustrated, and angry. David says to his soul, a soul that most assuredly struggled with the pride of recognition, being the most powerful man in the kingdom, he says to his own soul, don't look to me, bless the Lord. Not only does he remind himself that he must bless the Lord, that praise and honor should go to him, but that all praise and honor should go to the Lord with all that is within him. David says, I should use every fiber of my being, every ounce of strength, every skill, every talent, all that is within me to bless his holy name. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you praised the Lord like that? Now, I know that some of us are a bit older and perhaps a bit more fragile, so dancing like David did on his way into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant's probably off the table, right? However, as I mentioned earlier, what if we didn't have music? What if we didn't have the comfort of a church building to gather in? What about in your quiet times? What about in your inner chamber, your secret place, perhaps even simply in the car ride home? What does your praise sound like? What does your praise look like? What is the quality of your praise towards the Lord? Is there ever that all that is within me kind of praise? If not, why not? If so, where is that on Sunday mornings? Sunday mornings, church is not for professionals. Worship is not for professionals. It's not just for those who have had voice lessons. Worship is not just about being reserved and proper. Understand that worship, particularly singing, is not all emotion, but it's not emotionless. It's not all excitement, but certainly it's not to be dull and lifeless. I wish that some of you would let loose your tongues and make clear that to you, the Lord is good when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Worship, praise with the lips, is particularly for anyone who knows that, that the Lord is good. It's for anyone who's experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. If you've experienced it, if it has meant something to you, then tell us about it. 
Let us hear it on Sunday mornings. Let others in your families hear it throughout the week. Let your coworkers and neighbors hear about it. Just make sure your neighbors don't call the cops on you. If you tell them Pastor Rod said you should be playing your music loudly and singing loudly, I'm going to say I had nothing to do with it. Just tell them Pastor Chris told you. But brothers and sisters, let that all that is within you bless the holy name of the Lord. Whenever you have the opportunity, for as long as you have the opportunity, you don't need to have a professional voice. Again, we're not here to see you. We're not here to hear you. We're here to see and hear of the Lord. We're here to sing praises to the Lord because he is worth it. One more note before we move on. The immediate context here is praise in the worship service, but certainly we could talk about our skills, talents, and abilities, right? We are gifted with spiritual gifts, each one of us, and we're exhorted to employ those gifts in serving the body. Paul says in Romans 12 that as we consider the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He goes from there to discuss how each of us are gifted in the body. Our service to God, in other words, is directly connected to our service for one another. Thus, the all that is within me by application requires that we diligently, or in the words of Romans 12, fervently serve one another. In Romans 12, that idea of fervently serving, the word fervent has to do with something that is boiling hot. That's the intensity of it. So our service to one another ought to be boiling hot. That's the way we ought to approach our service to one another in the body of Christ. And that, in part, is how we praise and honor the Lord. That is a part of that all that is within you. We'll move on. Bless the Lord. Give honor to the Lord and do so with all that you have and all that you are. Hold back nothing. Why? And again, from here, we'll move a little bit quicker. Because of all of his benefits. Because of all the ways he's shown steadfast love to me. In verses 2 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he goes on from there. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. These are, again, poetic lines. These lines are each one thought building on each other. Your iniquity is your greatest disease, and the Lord has healed you of that in Christ. He redeems your life from the pit, crowning you with steadfast love and mercy. Your sin, your iniquity would have brought you down to the pit, and yet the forgiveness and healing of the Lord has come. And not only that, but he's crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. And he's done this at a time when you could do nothing in response, when you could do nothing for yourself. In all of this, he satisfies you with good. In another psalm, David says that the nearness of God is my good. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Again, David is talking to himself. He's reminding himself how God has so worked in his life to bring his life up from the pit, to redeem him, to crown him, not with a crown of gold, but with the Lord's steadfast love and mercy. Yes, we could talk about the tension in the Old Testament between the physical and the spiritual in terms of blessings. We could talk even now about how David could be insinuating that God has blessed him with many physical and tangible blessings. Certainly there were times when David's life was at stake and the Lord kept him from death. And yet it would be hard with this kind of language to see only the physical. David is thinking deeper here. He has in mind that his greatest need is the need for the salvation of his soul. 
This idea of redemption and the new life that the Lord gives him is what's on his mind. This idea of being renewed like the eagle, soaring above all of his challenges. He's talking about something greater than physical redemption. But whether he's thinking about physical redemption, spiritual redemption, or some combination, David recounts these things to himself. He says to his soul, do not forget these things. Do not forget these truths. And that's also instructive for us. Now I wonder, do you have a way of remembering and recounting the goodness of the Lord in your life? Perhaps a journal, a photo album with memories that you can pull out on special occasions. Again, these are things that are not merely physical, but also physical or material blessings, but also spiritual lessons that are learned. Spiritual truths that God has impressed upon your heart. Things that you can jot down and you can go back and you can look at in subsequent days for your encouragement. As a family, we have a loving kindness journal that my wife and the girls started many years ago. We took it out the other day and I read through and was encouraged just thinking about how the Lord has brought us through so many different things. And just looking at it from the perspective of all the different members of our family. That was encouraging. At times we sit and we talk about some of those things that we've gone through and that's also encouraging. There's a song, He's Always Been Faithful. Every time I hear that song, it gets me in my heart because God has always been faithful to provide. He's always taking care of us. We've never wanted for anything. I can never complain about anything. I know that that is true, and I confess that before you to do. If I ever complain about anything, you hear me complaining about something, you have my permission to shake me. (laughs) Because God has been so good to us in providing for us and caring for us in the midst of some very difficult things. One thing that was always so encouraging to me in a relationship that we have with some mentors of ours is that we would go to visit with them every year, and every year we would sit down, and there would be some time when we would sit down with them, and they would just talk about some of the different things that the Lord had brought them through. The ministries that they served in, some of the different ways that God had blessed them. And they were much further down the road than we are in life, but that was so encouraging just to hear them. And Sometimes we'd hear the same stories every year. But it was still just encouraging hearing how God had worked in their life and the gratitude that they had in their hearts for it and how full their hearts are just knowing that they've been used by the Lord in so many different ways. Sometimes when you're at your lowest, that's the best thing you can do. Instead of thinking on the things you've lost or the things you simply don't have, focus your attention on the goodness and kindness that God has already shown to you. Encourage your soul with those truths. Again, write it down, pull it out, think on it. And you know what? If all you have to say, if all you have to think on is that God has saved my dirty, rotten, stinking soul from condemnation, if that's all you have, then that's enough. And just chew on that truth. You can use that truth to encourage your own heart. Again, let's look at the next point, verses 6 through 14. We see praise for the steadfast love of the Lord to the congregation. The Lord works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts of the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Remember I said to you that one of the themes in this passage is the idea of the steadfast love of the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness. And the root idea of the word is goodness or kindness, particularly showing goodness or kindness to someone who's unable to help themselves, being compassionate and merciful. Look at the transition in verse 6. Again, he says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The steadfast love of the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness is realized in all that he does as he works righteousness and justice, particularly for any who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who are weak, weary, and broken. And what people better suited to those categories than the people of Israel? In the next section, he broadens that scope. Again, the scope of his exhortation to bless the Lord. He now looks to the congregation and says, to you also the Lord has shown his steadfast love. And you also have a reason to give praise to him. He made known his ways through Moses, Verse 7, his acts to the sons of Israel, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I'm sorry, abounding in steadfast love. That's a different translation. There we have our word again. And if anyone understood steadfast love, mercy, covenant faithfulness, it was the people of Israel. On the day that Moses went up to get the words of the covenant that God was making, the people were down on the bottom of the mountain worshiping idols. The very day that Moses goes up to get the words of the covenant, they're down there acting like complete and utter fools. Like they didn't remember who had just brought them out of Egypt. It was on that same mountain that God showed his glory to Moses. And these were his exact words about himself in Exodus 34. After Moses prayed, show me your glory, the Lord hid Moses in a rock passed before him, and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says, this is who I am. You want to know who the Lord is? Again, names are important. They're significant. You want to know who the Lord is, that covenant name for God? This is who he is. This is the glory of the Lord. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. He could have completely wiped out Israel for their spiritual adultery, for their foolishness. Again, while Moses is receiving the words of the covenant he's making with the people, they're worshiping idols. And God says to Moses, you know what, Moses? I could wipe them out and just start a new nation with you. I probably would have been like, you know what, Lord? Let's do it. But Moses was a good leader. He was a good, godly, wise leader, and he loved his people, and he interceded for the people. And the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgave. He forgave. And instead of wiping them out, he allowed them to continue. And not only did he allow them to continue and to go into the promised land, but he also went with them. He affirms his steadfast love and his faithfulness to them continually over and over again. David acknowledges this. 
He says in verses 9 and 10, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The implication is that God does get angry because of sin, but he doesn't stay angry forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins again. So they did sin, but God chose not to deal with them according to their sins. Well, again, this is poetry. And we see the reason why in three poetic illustrations that that David lays out here. Look again at verse 11. He could have just said that God has a lot of steadfast love, right? That would have been an easy thing to say. He is faithful to keep his covenant with his people, period. But he says it this way, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear them. Think about that for a minute. How high are the heavens above the earth? Now, before you scientific geniuses out there who know the exact altitude of the lower and upper atmospheres, kind of carry on here. Again, David says, as high as the heavens are, the heavens, which heavens? The first heaven? meaning the sky that we see above us, the second heaven, the space with the stars in the sky and the moons and the planets, or the third heaven, where God abides. Which one? He just says the heavens. Because it's poetry. It's meant to be imprecise. It's meant to be general. It's meant to be impossible to figure out how high the heavens are above the earth, and that's kind of the point, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth, That's how great his steadfast love is. You can't figure out. You can't comprehend it. We don't have any number to quantify that. And in case it wasn't clear that this is the congregation of Israel, he uses the term, those who fear him. And it's used often poetically to refer to the people of God. We could talk about the importance of fearing the Lord. That's not necessary here. This term is really functioning as a placeholder to identify God's people. They are those who fear him. If you do not fear him, then you don't belong to him, and neither are you a recipient of his steadfast love. But those who do belong to him are those who fear him. That's the idea. The next illustration, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Again, a poetic way to say that God has forgiven us. As far as the east is from the west, it simply cannot be measured. That is the point. That is how far the Lord has removed our transgressions from us. Why is it that he will not keep his anger forever? Why is it that he will not deal with us according to our sins? Because he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And the whole Old Testament system was meant to point to his final sacrifice, and it is fulfilled in his final sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews quotes the Lord as saying that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. All that was done before that was meant to point to this one final sacrifice. It was never meant for them to do it eternally. But it was to point to the one final sacrifice that was to come in Christ. He says again in Hebrews, a body you have prepared for me. And it says later that by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By the offering of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, by the shedding of his blood as a substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. God doesn't sweep our sins under a rug. That's not the point of this text. The point is that he has dealt with our sins definitively by the death of his son on the cross. 
And now he does remove our sins as far as the east is from the west for those who are in Christ. This is why we corporately praise him. This is why a church would not be a church without that all that is within me kind of praise exuding from the congregation. Because we have all been made recipients of his steadfast love, his steadfast love that is as high as the heavens are above the earth, his steadfast love that knows nothing of sin any longer, we all know that this is true of him and together we celebrate it. This is why we must get together. Again in Hebrews, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises is faithful. We're exhorted to hold fast the confession of our hope. How do we do that when times, are t- when times are tough, when life is hard, when life is weighing us down, when trials are weighing us down, when life is difficult, when we can't encourage our own soul? How do we do that? How do we hold fast to the confession of our hope? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we gather together? Why do we sing songs of praise together? Why do we sing over and over again about the sacrifice of Christ? Why do we sing over and over again about Jesus Christ and about his payment for our sins? Why do we do that every morning when we gather on Sundays? It is to remind ourselves that the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. That his mercies are new every morning. We need to hear that from one another. We need to encourage one another in that. As often as we have the opportunity. That's why we gather. That's why we must continue to gather. That's why we must not allow ourselves to fall away or to shrink away. And if you see someone missing, you need to reach out to them. You need to call out to them. You need to go grab them up by the collar if necessary and drag them into the fellowship. Make that your responsibility. Don't wait for them to come to you. Because we all need this reminder. We all need these encouragements, especially when we can't do it ourselves. This last illustration shows us all the more that our gathering is not just for show. It's not just for the professionals. It's not just about being religious. Again, verses 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord is not a detached, uninterested deity. He is like a father to his people. And he saves not because there's something save worthy in his people, not because he he owes them anything, but because as a compassionate God, as one who is full of steadfast love, he's like a father to them. He's like a father to us who cares. And it's interesting, those who assume that the Bible is all about patriarchy, oppression of the female gender, and perhaps that the Bible fuels a masculine tendency to be dominating and even demeaning to women and children, they completely miss passages like this. The as a father has compassion to his children assumes that fathers do and should have compassion on their children. And just as that is true, so the Lord has compassion on his people. Again, to those who fear him. He knows our frame, that we are dust. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are frail, and thus he has compassion on us. He does not stay angry with us forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, because as a father, he has compassion on us. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows that we are weak. 
It breaks my heart as a father to have to discipline my children, even when it's their fault. They've done something foolish, right? I mean, on the one hand, you want to discipline them because you want them to understand that things are not right. Not out of anger. Sometimes we do get sinfully angry as parents, and we have to repent of that. But we want to correct them and help them to understand what is right. But it breaks my heart to have to do it. Because I know that it's hard. It's hard for me to do what is right. It's hard for me to obey the Lord. And so I know it's hard for them. But the Lord doesn't look at us in that way because he knows that it's hard because he's a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner like we are. But he knows that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows that we're weak. And he loves us in spite of it. He cares for us in spite of it. For all these reasons, we praise him. When we come together, we come together to remind each other of these truths through our praise. Let's look at our last section. Again, we saw in the first section, praise for a steadfast love for me. Praise for a steadfast love for the congregation. And finally, praise for a steadfast love that's available to all in verses 15 through 22. And as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. These are concluding thoughts for David. He is essentially summarizing all of what he said and drawing one further conclusion. If the Lord is so, if his steadfast love is so, then he deserves praise from all. Again, verses 15 through 18. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over and is gone and its place knows it no more. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness, the children's children. And he goes on. This is our God. This is the Lord. The emphasis here is not on man, though he uses man as an illustration. Again, man in his pomp and all of his glory, man who causes us such consternation, such trouble throughout our lives, man whom we look up to, man whom we seek to emulate. Even we ourselves in all of our glory at our best are like grass. Men flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Season by season, lawn trimming by lawn trimming, the grass is plucked up. The flower is plucked up and its place remembers it no more. You don't name each of the flowers in your yard. You don't name each blade of grass because you know it's going to go away. You know what's going to happen. You don't give it a second thought when it perishes because that's the nature of grass. It comes and goes. And you know what the reality is? So do we. We come and we go. That is our lot. Again, this is not a self-help, feel-good-about-yourself kind of scripture. You are not eternal in that sense. You are weak. You are frail. You are temporary. But by comparison, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. 
The covenant faithfulness of the Lord will never fail. It will never falter. The Lord will never fail in his faithfulness. He will never fail in his compassion on those who are weak, sick, frail, weighed down by sin, oppressed by some opposition. Those who are his, those who are called by his name, those who fear him, those who keep his covenant, those who remember to do his commandments. For those, his compassion will never fail. That is truth. Period. Again, so the point is not missed. This is for those who fear him. If you're not one of his, then you have no claim on this truth. If you are not, again, as we discussed last week and just a bit ago, in the blessed one, in Jesus Christ by faith, the blessed one who has remembered to do all the commandments of his heavenly father, if you're not in him, then you cannot claim this truth. And it is not the steadfast love of the Lord that abides on you, but rather his judgment. John chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, has the steadfast love of the Lord, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, the promise is for those who fear him. And that's instructive and encouraging. Meaning in one sense, for whoever fears him. Meaning if you have not feared him, if you have not come to him by faith, you may take refuge in Christ today. Today is the day of salvation for you. Do not leave the same way you came in. Take this opportunity now to take refuge in the Son, to flee to the Son, the Blessed One, the One who for your sake kept every command of God, has received His blessing, and who extends that blessing to those who come to Him by faith. Take refuge in Him today. But for those of you who have trusted, do you believe this truth? Are you living as if you believe the truth that the steadfast love of the Lord never fails? If you are living a defeated life for some reason, a depressed life due to some trial, some great difficulty, some sickness, it's not because the Lord has failed, because his steadfast love never fails. It is from everlasting to everlasting. David says this is the truth that we are to remind our souls. This is the truth that we are to sing loudly to remind one another in the congregation. The steadfast love of the Lord never fails. It is from everlasting to everlasting. I cannot say that enough. Ultimately, that is our confidence in trial, our hope in suffering, our strength when we struggle with doubt, times when we question life, even our salvation. Our help when it comes to our time of death, our confidence is not in our ability to make sense of it. It is not in our ability to to do better. It is not in someone else's ability to help us. It's certainly not in our ability to keep ourselves alive. Our confidence believer is in the steadfast love of the Lord that he will never fail to show steadfast love to his people. Period. That is truth. That is a truth that you can take through your sickness through any struggle, through any trial, that is the truth that you can take to the grave. The steadfast love of the Lord will never fail you. Again, if it is so, then he deserves praise from all. Verses 19 through 22. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Again, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
And David seems to be worked up here. He says, what more can I say? This God, the Lord, the one whose steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting, I can attest to it. His people can attest to it. This God, the Lord, is Lord over all. Again, David starts off this psalm giving honor to the Lord as the one who alone is worthy of praise. Remember, again, this is the king of Israel speaking. Most kings, again, would desire to have their subjects give honor to him. But David here knows who the true king is. He knows who the true Lord is. The Lord, again, the covenant name for the God of Israel. His throne has been established in the heaven. His kingdom rules over all. And again, this is a very good thing. As we look at the leaders of the world today, as we think of their sovereignty over their stretch of land, over their people, we first think about what kind of ruler they are, what, the, what their character is like. How do they rule their people? Here, David says that God, the Lord, has steadfast love for his people. This really then becomes an invitation of sorts. The reality is that the Lord does rule over all and that the people of God will have an opportunity to come in contact with those who are not a part of the covenant. And so what is our message? What do we tell them? We tell them that we serve the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord, that is his name, and that his kingdom rules over all and that he is a good king who has steadfast love for all of his people, for all of his subjects and that they are invited to take part in his kingdom. And they do that by faith in Jesus. And so again, that's why when we gather together on Sunday mornings, our praise and our worship is so important. It's so significant. The way we praise the Lord tells of the goodness of our king. It tells the world of the goodness of our king. Do we come in here as if it is just a matter of checking off the box, the Sunday morning box, to come and put in our day's work, our religious day's work? Or do we come in because we are excited about the Lord our God? Because we are rejoicing in the salvation that he's given to us in Christ. Because we know that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And that he has made us recipients of that blessed steadfast love. Do you see that? Do you see the significance of that? Well, if you've heard nothing this morning from the rest of the passage, I hope you hear clearly that even if we were stripped of everything, if the Lord never provided another material or physical need for us, if everyone departed from us, this one truth would still remain, that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, that we can cling to that truth and that we may praise him at any time, in any way, for that very same truth. David says, those of you who knows that, know that, praise him. Praise him, angels. Praise him, ministers, those who do his will, those who are set apart to do his will. Praise him, everyone in all places of his dominion. Really, that is the whole earth ought to be giving praise to this God, this Lord who gives steadfast love to all of his kingdom because he is worthy. I'd encourage you with that truth to think about that as you give praise to God each time we gather together. I'd encourage you with that truth as you are in your quiet times, as you're in your prayer closet, as you're going throughout your day this week to remember that the Lord is good, that his steadfast love endures forever, and let that be the source that fuels your praise this week. Let that be the source that fuels your praise as you sing this next song that we're about to sing together. Do that for his glory. Amen.
Father, thank you for this time that we have together again. Thank you for your steadfast love. That your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. Thank you that you've given it to us.